You notice, uh, whenever somebody commits a terrible crime, the news will come and, and interview the man's neighbors. And what do the neighbors always say, without fail? He seemed like such a normal guy. Isn't that right? All the time. That's, that's, the, that's the, the testimony of the neighbors. I mean, he, he, was, you know, he kept to himself. He might have been a little quiet. But golly, he never caused any trouble. You know, he always paid his bills. He was always very polite. In other words, he appeared to be just like the rest of us which is what makes the crime all the more unbelievable, because apparently he had us all fooled. Isn't that what the neighbors always say? Well, you know, today in John 13, we come up against kind of a similar circumstance. Jesus makes it plain today that one of his own disciples is going to betray him, one from his inner circle. Now, of course, we have the benefit, if you own a Bible, if you've been walking through the Gospel of John with us, John, who wrote these words down years later, We know what's going to happen before it happens. We know from John chapter 6 that it's Judas Iscariot who's going to betray Jesus. But y'all, as it took place in real time, the disciples had no idea that such a plan was being hatched. From their perspective, Judas is one of us. He's just like the rest of us. He's just as faithful as we are. Certainly, Jesus had his enemies. The disciples knew that the, the Jews or the The Pharisees, the scribes, they hated Jesus. Yeah, but they're out there. In here, among the 12 of us, no way. No way could Jesus have an enemy from his inner circle. And what's crazy, y'all, you'll see it as we go. Even when it becomes clear what's going on, the disciples are still mystified. They have no category for an inner circle betrayal, but not Jesus. Jesus is the one, throughout the Gospel of John, he's always in the know. He always has a deep sense, not only of what's happening, but Jesus also has a very clear vision and plan for what will happen. You could say it like this. All the while, Jesus has had his hand, his divine hand on the pen, so that even in the face of the the all-time most famous betrayal, the betrayal of Judas, Even still, the plan and the purpose of God are being written in ink. Nothing is being derailed. Everything is happening, ultimately, according to plan. And so what we have in John 13, really it's a prime example of something John has told us time and again. The light has come into the world, that's Jesus, and no amount of darkness can overcome him. Nothing can stop who Jesus has come to be for the world. And so the first, chapter, uh, first half of chapter 13, we saw this last week, the Passover meal, the final meal, the Last Supper, has begun. Jesus began the Last Supper by taking off his outer garments and wrapping himself with a towel, getting down on his hands and knees, and washing his disciples' dirty feet. And then he says, just as I have done for you this act of service and humility, so you also should do for one another. Right? That's where we ended last week. But now look at John 13, 18. Jesus continues to speak here. His words. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, 
and he who receives me receives him who sent me. So much of what we see here and in the chapters to come, it's preparatory. Jesus is preparing his disciples for what's about to happen and for the days ahead. And so the disciples, right where they are, it's just the 13 of these men in the upper room, they know that the leaders are seeking out a way to destroy Jesus. But something critical is about to happen that's going to tip the scales, seemingly in their favor. All right? Jesus says to his 12 disciples in the room, not all of you are clean. Not all of you belong to me. I know the ones I have chosen, but this is so that the scripture may be fulfilled. And then Jesus quotes from King David in Psalm 41, he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Now, y'all don't need to turn to Psalm 41, but in that Psalm, David is being treated very harshly and wickedly by his enemies, which was nothing new. But much more painful to David's heart was what he says in that psalm. He says, my close friend in whom I have trusted, who shared my bread with me, has betrayed me. It's it's the kind of inner circle backstabbing that some of us know what it's like to have someone you trust very deeply turn on you, That's what David had gone through, and that was far more painful, far more destructive than all the work of his enemies combined. And y'all, it's this kind of inner circle, stabbing in the back, that's really, in David's case, is really pointing forward to a much greater um, experience that Jesus is going to have, coming from his own disciple Judas. And y'all, that's a terrible surprise, of course, to everybody which is why Jesus lays it out in advance. You see what he says? I'm telling you this now, so that when it happens, you may believe that I am. Think about the the betrayal of one of the 12 is an event powerful enough, potentially, to destroy the whole group. I mean, this, this is a scandal that's about to take place, which is intended, of course, to destroy Jesus, but in the process to destroy the whole movement. If we cut off the head, right, then the body will die too. If we get rid of Jesus, then the disciples, of course, will scatter and we'll have nothing else to worry about, right? That the potential is there for the whole thing to unravel. But Jesus says, listen, I'm telling you this now so that when it does happen, your faith would not fail. But in fact, your faith would be strengthened because you'll know that this was no accident. You'll know that nobody got the upper hand on the Lord. Jesus sees it coming, and he tells the disciples so that their faith might be strengthened rather than destroyed when it happens. But y'all, the fact that Jesus knew about it, the fact that Jesus was very confident and in control, doesn't make it any less terrible or awful. Look at verse 21. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit, anguished and angry. And testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, 
Who is it? I want us to take just a second here to kind of picture this scene. Um, Jesus and his disciples are reclining around the table for the Passover meal. Uh, In those days, you didn't sit in chairs around a table like we do. You reclined on pillows and pallets facing the table, but leaning down so that your feet were far away from the table. I've actually, I got a picture here, a painting that we can put up. And and y'all just leave that up for about 30 seconds, if you would. This is a scene that would feel very strange in our culture. I realize that, okay? Because essentially, everybody's reclined at the table spooning, okay? But this is how, this is how, this is how you ate in those days. You would recline, propping yourself up on your left elbow, so that you could use your clean hand, your right hand, to take food and drink. And therefore, you would be facing the back of the person in front of you, and your back would be to the person behind you. And in this scenario here, we've got Jesus declaring there's a traitor sitting at the table with us. And the disciples are mystified, right? Who in the world could he be talking about? They have no idea which gives us a sense maybe of how crafty Judas was, for one. But Peter gets the attention of the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, that's most likely John. This is John's way probably of referring to himself here in the gospel. And y'all, don't don't imply any arrogance in John's words. I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. that That could come across as arrogant. No reason for you to go around talking like that about yourself, right? Although it is true. To say that I am the disciple Jesus loved, this is probably, in ancient literature, oftentimes the person writing didn't identify themselves by name. And so we get John, probably, coining this phrase for himself. I'm the disciple Jesus loved, okay? This is, this is a very gracious term, okay? Not an arrogant one. But here's the idea. John is sitting in front of Jesus or on his right. Peter, maybe from across the table, gets John's attention. Hey, ask him who he's talking about. Which one's going to betray him? And so what John is doing, reclining here, he's in Jesus' bosom, John tells us, okay? What it means is, to to talk to Jesus, he's got to turn back and put his head back on Jesus' chest to ask him this question. Y'all kind of get the, the, the picture here. And he says, Lord, who is it? Look at verse 26. Then Jesus answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now, this is high drama. And and really, if if it were me in this moment, I might have just pointed a finger and said, it's him. It's Judas. But Jesus takes the morsel of food, probably bread, in keeping with Psalm 41, He sops it in a dish, and he hands it to his betrayer. He hands it to Judas. In silence, Jesus marks out the one who's going to turn against him, who's going to lift up his heel. Now, y'all, we know that this this part of the story has no happy ending. But, But I don't want us to miss what I think is really going on in this moment. Um, in ancient times, whenever, whenever a dinner host, and in this case, Jesus is playing host, whenever a host wanted to show special honor to an invited guest, he might take an especially tasty bite of food and give it to the guest. Uh, and, and most of us have done this before. If you're, 
eating with somebody and you've got an especially delicious plate of food, you might say, oh man, you've got to try this. And you'll cut off a piece and, and, or even put it on your fork and give it to them or you, you know, take, take a bite of my sandwich and you make, take that bite right there. Get, you know, you want to get everything in that one bite and you hand it to them. What is that? Nobody gives away delicious food for no good reason. It's an act of love. It's an act of honor. I want you to experience this because I care about you, right? That's what we do. And back then, it was an act of love. And so, y'all, most of the Bible commentators will see it this way, that even as Judas has it in his heart to betray Jesus, and Jesus knows it all, he dips the morsel in the dish, and he gives it to him. D.A. Carson says it like this. It's consistent with the picture of Jesus in this gospel to think of this as one final gesture of supreme love. However, verse 27, after the morsel, Satan then entered into Judas. Therefore Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose Jesus said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, Judas went out immediately, and it was night. Two people at the table actually know what's going on. The other, what, 11 guys are still in the dark. But at this point, Satan has done more than influence. Last week we saw Satan had put it into the heart of Jesus to betray, uh, Judas to betray Jesus. But now, John tells us, Satan has entered in. He's taken over. And once Jesus gives the word, Judas goes out into the night. And y'all, I, I have a sense that what John is doing, he's given us more than just a time marker here. He's not just telling us what time of day it was, but when it's nighttime, nighttime, of course, means darkness. And Judas, for the final time, has left from out of the presence of the light, Jesus, and is now totally swallowed up in darkness. He has removed himself from the light, and now darkness rules. And we don't see Judas again until chapter 18. The next time Judas appears on the scene, he's got an angry mob with him ready to take Jesus into custody. But y'all, I just, one more time, I want to drive home a point that John has been making all throughout this gospel, not just as it pertains to Judas, but just the, the truth about Jesus' ministry, that this betrayal right here, as evil as it is, as demonic as it is, this betrayal is entirely within the scope of God's plan and God's purpose. Back in chapter 6, John tells us Jesus knew from the beginning the one who would betray him. He knew from the beginning that Judas would be a traitor. Which means Jesus knowingly chose his own betrayer to be one of the twelve. This was not an accident. This is not something Jesus picked up along the way as he noticed some context clues. Judas seems to have a character different than the, the other guys. No, he chose him knowing that he would betray him. And so, y'all, even though the, the rest of the disciples couldn't fathom that Judas could be guilty, even though maybe it's hard for us to fathom why Jesus would choose 
someone to betray him from the inside. It should be for us a great comfort to know this. The most evil scheme of the devil, and this was the devil's best work right here. The worst betrayal of man in the end cannot derail God's divine plan. In fact, it actually brings it about. What what Satan is doing, what Judas is doing, without realizing it, they're actually helping God's plan to function, sending Jesus to the cross where he will lay down his life for the salvation of the world. Because God is sovereign over all. Every wicked device formed against Jesus in the end only serves to accomplish Jesus' purpose. And y'all, for us, right where we sit, that ought to give us comfort as we live in a dark and evil world. There is no evil formed against God or his children that in the end will prosper. All of it in the end only works for his redemptive plan and our glory. That's an amazing thought, and it's hard to believe. But we find it in the cross of Christ, and therefore we can trust God with everything. In the end, even evil on display only serves to accomplish God's greater purpose. And we see that, and if you think I'm making that up, I'm not. Look at what Jesus says right after this, verse 31. Therefore, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Now, there's a lot of glorifies in there, and it may be confusing as to what Jesus means here, but y'all, this is, here's what it is. Now is the time. Everything has been set just so for the glory of Jesus Christ to be revealed through his death. The glory of God has already been revealed in Jesus' life and ministry, but there's a greater glory yet to be seen, yet to be uncovered for us. The Son is glorified in the Father, Jesus says the Father is glorified in the Son because the Son is going to lay down his life to take away the sin of the world. And we also, I think, get a sense of of Jesus pointing forward to his resurrection here, not just his death. The Father will glorify the Son immediately, all at once. Which is to say, Jesus did not come only to die, but also to rise again in glory. Everything that's happening here, everything I foretold you, Jesus is trying to communicate now, this is for my glory and the Father's glory. It will come to pass, just as he desires. And y'all, it's a unique kind of glory. It's something reserved only for Jesus. Look at verse 30, 33 rather. In verse 33, little children, I'm with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, Where I'm going, you cannot come. Once Jesus sets his eyes on Calvary, the disciples are going to be, in some sense, left behind. This is a road they cannot walk. No one but Jesus can walk this road. And even after Jesus will eventually uh, rise again from the dead and ascend to the Father, he's going to leave the disciples behind. They're going to remain on earth as his apostles, his sent ones, to be his witnesses to the world. Where I'm going, you cannot right now come. And therefore, in the meantime, between now and the time they enter into glory themselves, Jesus gives them their marching orders. 
And he'll do this more extensively in the chapters to come. But one of the most precious and central commands in all the Bible happens right here. Jesus says, in the meantime, how are you to live? Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus calls this a new commandment. And if we're, you know, if we're familiar with the Old Testament, we might say, wait a minute. Way back, God already told us, love your neighbor as yourself, right? So what's, is this, how's this new? And of course, Jesus hasn't made a mistake. The newness comes in the quality of the love. And this is so central for us to see and understand. The newness is in the quality of the love being commanded. Jesus says, love one another, how? Even as I have loved you, just as I have loved you. That's the quality, that's the benchmark for the love we're meant to have for each other. And so y'all, this, this is, I mean, this is elementary kind of thinking here, I know, but let's just, let's consider Okay, if we're supposed to love each other the way Jesus has loved us, how has Jesus loved us? What kind of love is he talking about? We spoke on this at length last week, how Jesus emptied himself and became to us a bondservant. That although he was God, he he willingly made himself as nothing for our sake. Uh, The way the Apostle Paul framed it, He says, Jesus, though he was rich, rich in glory, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, you might become rich. Jesus has loved us with absolute self-sacrifice for our eternal good. And so this command in John 13, love one another as I have loved you, This command carries an infinite amount of weight for us. This is not something we whistle past. This is something that for us ought to stop us in our tracks. If you have known the love of Christ for you, you are now commanded to love others, love one another in like manner. And I think, I mean, honestly, if if we really understand what Jesus is saying here, it ought to stop us in our tracks. It ought to feel insurmountably impossible that I could possibly love anybody the way Jesus has loved me. And y'all, if it does feel for you, I mean, if we talk about it, if we read it, if it feels impossible for you, then I want to say good. Because maybe in that case, we have some sense of how much Jesus really has loved us. And that's always my hope when I stand and preach, is to give us a clearer picture of how much truly the Lord has loved you and me so that we would not casually approach Jesus, but that we would stand in awe of him, that the divine God would love me the way he has. It ought to make this command feel impossible for us because we have a sense of the greatness of God's love for us. But y'all, the, the encouragement I want to take, and I hope we all take today, is that it's not impossible. Jesus didn't command us to do stuff that we couldn't do, especially in this case, because when God saves you, when God saves me, 
He does more than just forgive our sins. It's not just a spiritual transaction that takes place. I get forgiveness, God takes the punishment, right? Puts it on Jesus. That's wonderfully true. But you also get a new heart. That's part of what it means to be a Christian is that we actually receive the very Spirit of God to indwell us a new heart by which we are able to love God and love others. And so we have, right now, if you are a Christian, that means that you have everything you need right where you sit to obey this command. We really have been made new creations. We've been given resources to do what Christ has told us to do and called us to do. The love we receive, we can actually give. Imperfectly, yes. We fail, we fumble all the time. But we are capable, by the grace of God's Spirit, to actually do this. And in fact, we better do this. Because Jesus says, this is your witness to the world. This is not just your personal choice as to whether you choose to live this way or not. No, by this, all men will know you are my disciples. By the love you have for one another, which is to say the evidence of our belonging to Jesus is not mere religious activity, not merely church attendance or financial giving or or Bible memorization or any other religious activity that we would say is good, yes, we ought to do it, but Jesus says the way the world will know you're mine is in how you love. And so, y'all, for the sake of of clarity, I want to just strip this down for us the best we can. If we were to ask the question, how, how do my neighbors know? How does my community know? My friends and family, my Facebook friends, my Instagram followers, you pick. How would these people know truly that I'm a Christian? If you took all the, the, the Bible verses on my wall away, if you took the fish on the back of my car away, if you took, if you took all the, the, the outward maybe trappings away, and if all these people had to go on was how I treat you, and how I treat them. If the only evidence there was was how we speak to and serve and pray for and forgive and relate to one another, how strong would the evidence be that I belong to Jesus? And I don't say that to shame us, I just it's, a, it's to sober us. Because in the end, Jesus says, the proof of knowing him is in how well I love you. Years later, John, who wrote these words, wrote more words in his letters, and he went on just an extended commentary on this, especially in 1 John chapters 3 and 4. Here's one of the summary statements he gives us, 1 John 3, 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. In other words, we know that we have truly been saved because we love each other. And he who does not love remains in death. That is to say, if if God has not brought transformation to my heart so that I'm more loving to my brothers and sisters in Christ, then the evidence, at least the evidence in that case, points to I haven't really come to know Christ at all. And John is simply echoing what Jesus said. If we have come to know the immeasurably great love of Christ, we will be changed 
to more and more into people who love one another. Not just people who love God. That's a given in this case. But who love each other and love each other sacrificially. Let that be a challenge to us. None of us are there yet. None of us are as far down that road as we ought to be, including me, especially me. But by the grace of Jesus Christ, we can be more and more the kind of people he created us to be when he laid down his life. Now, y'all, there's just a little bit of scripture left. I don't have any fancy way of turning the corner here, but we're close to being done. It's too important to skip, so let's just finish. Uh, we, we won't give a lot of time to this, but it's really important. Verse 36, and it, it, it'll, it'll, well, I'll tie it together. Okay, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Jesus tells Peter straight up, that he's going to deny the Lord, deny ever knowing him. And of course, that's exactly what happens. We have to wait to chapter 18 to see it. But even though Jesus told him it was going to happen, it still happened anyway. Uh, it's, it's certainly a dark ending to this chapter. But y'all, right in the midst of what Jesus just said is some wonderfully good news. And I want to end with it. Peter swears that he will lay down his life for Jesus. And he means it. We don't have to consider him to be insincere here. He certainly meant what he said. And Jesus replies, will you lay down your life for me? There's something going on here. There's an irony here in the fact that Peter has got it backward. For all his bravado, for all his self-assurance, Peter is just sure that he'll lay down his life for Jesus. But Jesus is the one who's about to lay down his life for Peter. Knowing full well that Peter is about to deny him, knowing that Peter is about to abandon him, Jesus is going to be the one to lay down his life for him. And y'all, there we ought to take so much comfort and courage and hope from this truth right here because we're just like Peter. That for all that we are, the good and the bad, we need to realize that Jesus sees right through us. Just as he saw through Judas, just as he saw through Peter and everybody else, Jesus knows everything about us. He sees us down to the bottom. That means that Jesus knows how unloving I can be. Jesus knows how many promises you've broken. Jesus knows in every intricate detail the dark and hidden areas of our hearts, the stuff that we hope nobody ever finds out about. Jesus knows it all. And yet he has loved us all the way to the bottom. He has, with his great light, entered into every dark place. And he's demonstrated that love for us in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. He laid down his life for those who could not save themselves. Peter couldn't save himself. Peter couldn't even keep up his own promise when push came to shove. But Jesus kept his promise. Jesus laid down his life, even still.
And so, y'all, if we recognize the greatness of Christ's love and the call for us to be loving and kind, we need to pray. Pray for one that we would receive his love fully and having received it, that we would also reflect his love freely. I need to pray for that. So let's do it together. Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you. I pray that we would thank you from the deepest part of our hearts. That your grace for us, your love for us, has not depended on our ability to love you back, to keep our promises to measure up. And so truthfully, I pray, Father, we would just see it, that in this upper room there's a traitor, Judas, but none of these men around the table were worthy of what you did for them. And certainly in this room, we share that testimony. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. And so, Father, I pray this this morning that you would give us a, a deep sense of your love, a love that that crushed the work and the scheme of the enemy. A love that that came to us humbly and sacrificially and freely so that we might be reconciled, Father, to you and that we might know a love that never fails and never runs dry. Father, give us, I pray, faith to look to Jesus Christ and delight in his love for us. And Lord, will you um, fill us with this this overwhelming desire to look at the command today to love others with joy. This is not something we have to do. We get to do this. We get to reflect your love to our brothers and sisters in Jesus, we get to live in such a way that that others will see our love and our good works and turn and glorify you because they'll know for sure that we were not the source of that love, but you are. What a joy. Help us to see it, Lord, not as a burden. It is not a burden. It's a gift. It's a privilege to be your people in this world, serving as your light in every dark place and being known by our love. Father, where we fail in this, and we do, make us sober-minded. We're not just called to be nice people and polite people. 
we're called to be loving like Jesus. And so, Lord, let us, that we would not lower the bar for ourselves, but we would keep it up high where it belongs and aspire to love Jesus and love others in a way that reflects your heart, Father. Um, Help us, Lord, to take one step today in that direction. And we'll do it all by your grace so that we may not boast in ourselves, but boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, who made this all possible. We love you and we thank you in his awesome and loving name. Amen.